0: Welcome to the Science of Success, introducing your host, Matt Bodner.
2: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this interview, we discuss how to finally break through what's holding you back, take action, and create lasting habit and behavior change. Less than 30% of people succeed in changing their behavior without using the tools and strategies we share in this interview. Uncover the neuroscience of how your brain gets stuck, and finally start using strategies that really work to create more breakthroughs and results in your life with our guest, Dr. David Rock. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com, or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous interview, we discussed why creativity is the new literacy and how you can unlock your own creative genius to create the life you want to live. Most people are completely wrong about what they think creativity is and how to be more creative. We dispelled the myths about creative work and showed you how to build your creative muscle so that you can create breakthroughs, find your calling, and live your dream life with our previous guest, Chase Jarvis. If you want to unlock incredible creative energy in your life, listen to our previous episode. Now, for our interview with David. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show dr david rock david coined the term neuroleadership and is the director of the neuro leadership institute he co-edits the Neuroleadership journal and heads up an annual global summit he's the author of the best-selling your brain at work quiet leadership and the textbook coaching with the brain in mind he's been featured in the harvard business review fortune magazine psychology today and many more publications david welcome to the science of success thanks very much matt good to be here well we're super excited to have you on the show and I can't wait to dig into some of these ideas. You know, to start out, I'd love to just start with the premise of your brain at work, which is this notion of what happens when we get stuck and how do we break through?
3: Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And what's so fascinating, one of the many fascinating things about the brain is how easily we get stuck, you know. And, you know, I was at breakfast this morning with a friend and I, I ordered an avocado toast and my friend said, oh, can I have an avocado toast without the bread? And the you know waiter said... Mm, I'll get you two sides. I'll get you some avo- side of avocado, and I'll get you, you know, an egg. And he said, "No, I, I just want the avocado toast without the toast." And he said, "No, no, no, I can't do that." And you know, he brought out mine, which was lovely, and it had salad and you know, dressing and some nice stuff on the avocado and some nuts and you know, and a bit of toast and an egg. And he brought out you know, literally a poached egg and a piece of avocado <laughs> for this guy. And you know, what happened is the chunks in this you know waiter's brain is you know either or and. The brain like collapses on. Look, it's either avocado toast or it's like something else completely. And he couldn't just like imagine like, oh, maybe we could just like literally take the toast out and do everything else, put it on a plate, and it would have been much much nicer. But it would have required like breaking out of, you know, the way that information is being chunked. And it's amazing the smallest challenges like this uh, it become really big for the brain. Like you know, just breaking out of the tiniest ways that you've chunked things, you know, is really really hard. You know, one of my favorite kind of little games is, I'll do this with you now, Matt, like the, the phrase, time flies like an arrow, right? Five words. Time flies like an arrow. Five words. Time flies like an arrow. Like, if you think about all the different ways you could interpret that, what have you got, Matt? Right? mean, you know, Now I'm interviewing
2: you. Okay. <laughs> and, I mean, I, the first thing I see is like sort of a visual of like an arrow flying through the air.
3: Right. So what, what's a different way of interpreting those five words? Like like what's another way of saying time flies like an arrow? Get really creative on me.
2: I don't even understand like the goal of the exercise, so I'm I'm well, befuddled. Examples, but okay. I'll give you some examples. Like
3: it's basically different versions of the metaphor, like, oh, you know, time can kill you or time is oh, ooh, okay. or time goes in one direction. These are all like, you know, whole different ways of seeing this, right? Time only goes one way, time goes quickly, you know, time moves through space. Do you know what I mean? So, like, you know, time flies like an arrow. What's interesting is that when you give this to people, they come up with hundreds of different interpretations like this, but none of them are actually creative. You're still locked into exactly what you're, you told me, Matt, that your brain did. What your brain did was picture an image of an arrow moving through space, correct? Yep. Okay, that's the problem. So, what you did is you locked into a schema, it's called, of this is about an arrow. And the fact that you saw it is bad in a way because it means you've got, you've activated a really robust network in your brain. And basically what you're going to do is come up with a hundred versions of different things that like it means for, you know, an arrow to move through space. But actually there's completely different interpretations of those five words that your brain completely misses because you're locked into that one. So time flies like an arrow. Actually, you could check the speed of flies the way you would an arrow. So time. Insects, you know, check the speed of insects the way you would time an arrow. Time flies.
2: Oh, you just blew my mind.
3: Right? Like an arrow, right? Like, what the heck? You, you can't imagine that because your brain is so locked in. No, this is just five words, <laughs> right? So, oh, oh, here's my favorite one. There's actually five of these. I won't like completely explode your brain. But my favorite one is, you know, time flies, a, t- a type of insect, are fond of arrows. <laughs> like, time flies like an arrow, <laughs> Now, you know, you wouldn't imagine, your brain sort of doesn't imagine that that's all that important and it discards that interpretation. And in, in the back of your brain, in your unconscious, it goes through all these possible interpretations, very quickly lands on one. And so this example basically is an example of how we chunk into the most kind of standard common schema, and then we get fixed in that. And we do this with everything, like five words, you know, what work we should do, how to deliver to a customer, how this product works, you know, everything and it's you know, it really hurts your brain to break out of it in a way. It's not, that's a metaphor, but you know, it's hard. Most people can't do it without a lot of effort. So the the mechanics of this, and I've looked into this a lot, essentially your unconscious brain does a lot of like reorganizing much more powerfully than your conscious brain can. Like you can't move around three variables or four variables in your conscious brain easily at all. Even four words, it's really, you know, like seven letter anagrams, you know, give people seven letters. They can't, find the word very easily at all, it's really challenging finding, you know, all possible words out of seven letters. If you play Scrabble or these kinds of things, like it's just hard to move things around in your head, right? So what happens is we get stuck, you know, all the time, but your unconscious is very good at this. But unfortunately, the unconscious is actually inhibited by the conscious. So, you know, when you're stuck thinking about an arrow moving through space, you can't actually interpret the other ways. So you actually have to turn off the solutions you currently have to have new ones come in it's a bit like moving, like changing traffic on the freeway. You've got to actually stop the traffic going one way before the traffic can go a different way, right? You're going to change the flow of direction of traffic. It's like that in the brain. While everything's kind of connected one way, thinking about arrows moving through space, you can't think about, you know, insects liking arrows. You can't kind of do both. So part of it is just kind of putting the brain in idle. And what we see in lots of studies, and I wrote about this in your brain at work, is that that essentially, you know, you have more of these breakthrough moments, I call moments of insight, when your brain overall is quiet. And there are kind of four conditions that facilitate this. One is just, you know, literally not doing much thinking or, or speaking and just like your brain being kind of idle. Like when you sort of wake up in the morning and you just, you're not actually thinking about anything, but you're just kind of laying there. So quiet, internally focused is really helpful. So when you basically stop listening or seeing, your whole brain gets quieter because you're not processing all this incoming data. The third thing is when you're slightly positive, you have a lot less noise in your brain than when you're slightly anxious. So, you know, what's the opportunity here versus what's the problem here. And the fourth one is the one I kind of just described, which is not directly thinking about the problem the way you have so far. So kind of deanimating your current networks and these four conditions, when you activate this, you get a dramatically more insight. And, you know, we tend to have these moments of insight in the morning because our brain's naturally quieter, you know, when we're walking, exercising, you know, all these kinds of things. And, you know, the unconscious brain is trillions and trillions of times more powerful than the conscious brain. So a bottom line is you want to leave space for these breakthroughs. So that's the, you know, that's the big takeaway. It's really hard to just shift simple things. We get stuck in, you know, patterns very easily. And what we've got to do is let the unconscious move the stuff around and be able to have it come into our conscious brain, which is, is quite noisy. The unconscious solutions are quiet, like small amounts of electrical activity. Conscious solutions are noisy. And we sort of just don't hear the solutions until our our brain gets quiet. So it's like hearing a quiet cell phone at a, at a loud party. We've got to kind of turn the noise down. So that's the deeper stories. A lot more on that. I write about it in your brain at work. I think that I've written, a, I've blogged a couple of times on Harvard Business Review and other places. If you look up like um, the aha moment or how to have more insights, you'll see some of my writing on this space as well. But uh, yeah, back to you.
2: Yeah, that was fascinating. There's a, there's a number of things I want to unpack from that. The example is so good because it, it really makes it very concrete. And then Expanding that idea out, that it's so easy to get trapped into these mental schemas or these patterns that of thought. And you made a great point a minute ago, where you said this this happens with everything. It happens with the way you work. It happens with the you know how you think about achieving your goals. It happens with you know how you think about success. And it, it's such a such a dangerous phenomenon, and one that happens almost without a, us even being consciously aware of the fact that we're locked into these patterns.
3: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. We do it with everything. And, you know, it's efficient. It it helps us be efficient. If you had to, like, categorize everything as you went, you'd be like a baby. You know, you don't have schemas that you can build around. You know, you you need these these chunks, these schemas to be able to move through the world. You can't, you know, every time you cross the road, you can't work out what these moving objects are and whether they're dangerous or not. You just, you've got to know that they're cars and you should stay out of their way. And, you know, we've only got so much conscious processing power. So we need to kind of push these chunks into the unconscious to survive, but then they work against us when we're trying to innovate, basically.
2: So let's unpack that in more detail, this idea of how we start to first become aware of these schemas that are impeding our thinking. And then how do we start to cultivate or create breakthrough moments in our lives?
3: Yeah. I mean, look, the first thing is is language. Like the more language you have for your own brain, the more you can notice what's going on. Language connects the prefrontal to the rest of the brain. When you have words for an experience, you see that experience. You know, if you have words for flavors, for example, you know, if you have no words for flavors, you don't even know what salt is, what pepper is, what sugar is. You don't know what sweet is, what sour is, all that. You know, you're, you're eating. It's like just all noise. But as you develop language, you go, oh, that's salt. Now you spot it right oh, i want I like saltier things. I'm going to add more salt. well, that's too salty, right, or you know I like pepper, I want more pepper like this you don't know what pepper is without language. it doesn't kind of jump out of the background, but then you know real foodies will 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 have not just you know salt and pepper and spice they'll have like lots and lots of language right for for crunch and texture and tastes and sparklings, you know all sorts of things right, and you know the same in any domain, you know music right if you're a musician, you understand attack and decay, which is the you know, the, the the sort of build up to a note and the drop down after a note hitting, you know, you know, you'll have all this other language. So you'll be literally noticing data strings other people don't notice when you have language, right? A foodie or a musician, you know, has literally a richer experience when they, you know, interact with their mental drug of choice. The more you know about your brain the same way, the more you actually can say, oh, I want to turn that up. I want to turn that down. Oh, I like that. I don't like that. Oh, I can see that coming. I might not you know, put so much of that on. And so, you know, so a lot of it is about just kind of building language. And that's what I attempted to do with your brain at work is just kind of develop a language that's, that's, you know, very, very science-based obviously, but actually I put equal weight on making sure it was sticky, that people could remember it. So I put a lot of work into kind of simplifying the complex stuff so that people could actually recall it. Because one of the big, you know, things that you need to remember about the brain is how limited our, you know, recall is and working memory and stuff like that. So you know, that's the answer to your first question. In terms of insight, I mean some tactical things, just keep your brain quiet in the mornings, especially. Don't check your emails till after your shower. It's an amazing rule. Like get up in the morning, potter around, don't check your emails, don't like check in with your phone at all. You know, interesting thing with the phone is is it makes your brain noisy even if it's off but in the room. It actually your brain still notices it and starts to animate in the background all the networks involved with what you could be using and seeing, right? It like kind of primes you. It's actually got to be off and in a completely different room for your phone not to affect your IQ, like your IQ. (laughs) And a lot of that is because of the noise it creates. It literally makes your brain more asynchronous. So what we've got to do is kind of have these quieter moments if we want these breakthroughs. And a a simple rule of thumb is do, you know, creative work first in the morning, you know, urgent and important work second, and, you know, emails, everything else third. It's super helpful. And, you know, so firstly... Don't look at your any devices until you know after a shower, preferably after breakfast. That's your best time for insight is in the morning. We did a study some years back, but ten percent of people do their best thinking at work. <laughs> most people, like 90% of people do their best thinking when they're not at work. And most of us do our best thinking in the morning. Certainly there are night owls, but but generally we do our best thinking. We have the most insights in the morning. So, you know, if you run an organization, if you run a team, it's like don't schedule meetings till after eleven or twelve. Let people use the morning time to really be productive and then just pay attention to quiet signals these insights are quiet signals so you're, you're like tick like a tickle like a hunch you know pay attention to these things value them and see what's there kind of follow the follow the money the money in this case being a hunch and it's often your unconscious brain kind of you know trying to to give you a clue as to something
2: I love that statistic only 10% of people do their best thinking while they're at work Yeah mad right It's pretty crazy but the, the whole idea of even, even the simple idea of keeping your phone in a different room is such a great strategy. And, and I've been thinking for a long time about sleeping with my phone in a different room. I think this is actually going to give me the nudge and, and push me over the edge to actually do that. I just started doing that,
3: actually, like a couple of weeks ago. I'm really enjoying it. What was missing for me was like the the alarm clock and the time and stuff like that. But actually what I did was put an actual clock like a, you know, like a, you know, alarm clock where the time is always clear in the room. So I could actually always look over and see the time without having to do anything. And that actually was better than a phone because a phone, you sort of wake up, you press the button, you get light, you get all this stuff. But actually if I need to know what the time is, like if I wake up too early or middle of the night, this is actually better. So there was an upside I wasn't expecting that was not obvious to changing it and also there's the you know there's the reduced noise which is great
2: i also think the whole notion of gearing your mornings towards having creative and contemplative routines and activities is is such a great strategy that's something i've been using for years and the notion of i really like the the hierarchy you gave it do creative work first then urgent and important work. And then only after you finish those things, then you get into email and meetings and everything else.
3: Yeah, it's super helpful. Now, some people can't do that every day, of course. Lots of people can't do that every day. But most of us can do that at least one day a week. I can tell you, if you do that one day a week, like after a couple of months, your creative output will explode. Like if you normally write, you know, one or two blogs a month, you'll find yourself writing five or six blogs a month. Like it's, it's huge. So just, you know, even if you can just choose one day a week, there's also a time in the week, Matt. So like Monday morning, we do our best quiet writing, right? Tuesday morning, we're pretty good. By Wednesday, a bit noisy. Sometimes we get a second wind on Friday, thinking the weekend's coming. But so kind of choosing the day when you can do this, if it's not realistic to do it every day, but you could weave it in as a discipline, like, hey, every Monday I'm going to do this. And a huge difference over the year, you'll find a huge, huge impact. On your productivity. The other thing that you can do, I, I find this, is after exercise or a nap or just something like fun and restful. I often find I've got a lot of mental energy, and so I'm I'm paying attention to when I have like the urge to write, like when I've got ideas and I can sort of my fingers are kind of itchy. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down, and shut everything off, turn off my phone and do everything, and just like sit down and write. And so I try to pay attention to that. When I was working on your brain at work and other books, you know, I would intentionally like you know write, write, write. And then just, you know, go and do some exercise and stop thinking. And by the time I'd finished exercising, I'd be like wanting to write again. <laughs> but I'd sort of, I'd sort of burn myself out before exercising. And then I'd sort of get back to actually wanting to. So it was a little bit of that. And I used to fly a lot around the world. I'm originally Australian. I used to fly a lot from Sydney to, to New York and use the time. And what I learned is I could like write for an hour to an hour and a half and then watch kind of 15 minutes of comedy. It had to be comedy because if it was a scary movie, it raises your cortisol and your, you know, your threat response, which is bad for writing, what you want is more dopamine, which is a, you know, more pleasant, hopeful, optimistic, you know, open mind, but I could sort of do it an hour and a half of writing 15 minutes of comedy, hour and a half of writing 15 minutes of And I could write for like 10 hours doing that, you know, kind of a long flight, right? And so, so there's this thing about just kind of watching what your brain does and, you know, what does it take to get your brain back into the state where you're actually doing good work again? You know, pay attention to that. It'll be different for everyone. There'll be different activities that do that. But, you know, try to do a lot of those.
2: Great strategy and a really important point, which you you mentioned just now about paying attention to when those moments of insight or creative energy strike. And you also said the same thing earlier when you were talking about how do we discover the times when our mental schema are blocking our ability to be creative or have breakthrough insights. It all comes back to this idea of understanding and paying attention to what's happening with your thoughts. How do we start to develop that ability to pay attention and be aware of what's happening in our brains?
3: I mean, the simplest answer, to be honest, is get my book, get a few people together, read a chapter a week together and talk about it. <laughs> That'll do it. I mean, I literally laid out the key language you most want, not everything, but the key language you most want to understand if you're trying to have you know, a better life. You know, the book walks through basically like working memory, which is just how you solve decisions, you know, solve problems, make decisions then works through like managing your emotions and then works through like interacting with other people and then just like how to change yourself and others. So it, it kind of builds the language. But what I would say is read a chapter a week or every two weeks or even every month with a few people and, you know, co- like commit to each other to kind of play with it and come back together and share what you, you know, what you learned. That's the very best way to do it. Cause I mean, I literally built the book for that task and especially, you know, one of our insights at my Institute, we're researching all the time. How do you create change at scale? and you know one of one of our big insights is there's enormous enormous value in you know learning socially like learning with others and it's not like you get a little bump like a 10% 50% 100% bump you get hundreds of percent bump in the likelihood of real change in in fact the number one variable for for why people change turns out to be because other people are so it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, like build the language, but build the language with others ideally and share the language. So it's, a, it's, it's an alive language. You know, there are obscure languages that no one speaks anymore. You know, there's thousands of languages humans speak, there's a bunch of them no one speaks. You know, this is a language that should be spoken. And, and as you do that, you see more and more, you start to notice things faster and faster.
2: I want to come back and unpack a couple of the other themes from how we create insight. But before we do that, you just mentioned something that I think is worth exploring. Which is this notion? Tell me more about this idea that the number one reason people change is because other people change.
3: Yeah, it's really it's interesting. Now, this comes from hard data. This is not theoretical. This comes from this is not our direct research. It's it's from Colorado State University. There's a fantastic department there that it's a center that's studying like sustainability and human change and this kind of stuff that's obviously really important at the moment. And you know they've been looking at this through lots of lenses, like. You know, you're trying to get people to do different things like, you know, put a towel on the bed in a hotel or that's the wrong metaphor. It's put the towel in the bath if you don't want to use it or put it on the rack if you, you know, if you want to reuse it, like getting people to do that or getting people to flush the right way with they've got two optional flushes or, you know, these kind of behavioral things. And they've, because they're kind of simple, repetitive behavioral things that everyone does, you can collect tons of data and really see what humans actually do. And, you know, what what they find, you know, particularly these kinds of behavioral changes is, You know, letting people know that other people are doing this is much more valuable than giving people like some negative motivation or positive motivation, or you know, like so so incentive or threat basically, or like anything else that you can do basically. It's like saying, oh yeah, other people have been doing this, but like you know, seventy percent of people have been doing this in the hotel gets a you know good bump, but seventy percent of people in this room have been doing this really gets the highest change. So letting people know that others, you know that are quite close to them in a sense, like socially close, you know, in your network, you know, really does it. So that, that seems to be like a really big driver of change. And I think, you know, we, we correlate that back to the social brain. So the brain is wired to think socially before everything else, the, the, there's a network for thinking about you and others and how you all interact in the brain. It's a network for basically like Animating you, you know, if you're thinking about yourself, a network in the brain animates and it includes all your memories and hopes and you know all this stuff, right? So, there's, and there's a network for animating other humans. It turns out to be the same network, by the way. Animating you, animating others in the brain, you know, activating this network it's actually the same network. It turns out this network's actually on so much, it's it's they they called it the default network because it's basically always on until you switch it off to do a math task or schedule a meeting or. Whatever else, so it, this is the background hum of the brain, literally thinking socially. It's the it's the medial prefrontal cortex, which is kind of the middle of the forehead in the brain. It's it's quite a small network in one ways, but it's deeply connected and all this stuff. So anyway, I, I digress. But you know, we think you know social things are so important, and social threats are really strong. They feel you know very salient, and social rewards feel really, really salient as well. And in fact, there's lots of studies, Matt, showing that the strongest threats and rewards, you know, the characteristic are are social. The social ones are much more than non-social. So that's really what's driving it, is people don't want to look bad and and they want to look good. So they're, you know, minimizing threat and maximizing reward and doing that as it relates to status, you know, the sense of status, doing it as it relates to feeling like they're part of an in-group, doing it, you know, as it relates to a sense of fairness, so these are these are driving their, their intrinsic motivations. I think that's the way we understand it. Other people will explain it differently for sure, but that's how we think about it.
2: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. I'm curious, I want you to explore the full SCARF model, which you just touched on a second ago and and, and extrapolate on that idea. But anyway, unpack the, the notion of the SCARF model, which you touched on some of the components of that and how that interacts with this.
3: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, going back to the point that language gives you, you know, an ability to, you know, add more or less salt and, you know, in this case, more or less insight, right? Or more or less threat, like language gives you the ability to, you know, alter your experience, Right then one of the biggest things people need to manage in the brain is the level of threat that we experience and other people experience. And and by threat, I mean like, like the sense of danger, right? So the, the brain basically classifies everything into danger or opportunity. So every podcast title that we see, we have a reaction like, oh, that's a danger. I shouldn't listen to that. It's going to mess my head. Or that's an opportunity. It's a continuum, not binary. So, you know, there'll be some podcast titles you'll see be like, wow, that's really exciting. I've got to listen to that right now. And some will be like, I am never gonna listen to that. So the, you know, everything's categorized, not just podcast titles, but literally every unit of sound we hear, we have this threat or reward response. And, and what I wanted to do when I was working on your brain at work 15 years ago, I started working on it. When I was working on it, I was like, gosh, you know, managing your threat state is kind of, the most important thing uh, for so many people because basically threat is inversely proportional to cognition. In other words, you know, the stronger your, particularly the negative response, the threat response, uh, which is stronger than the positive, uh, you know, reward response, but that, that negative threat response, essentially the stronger it is, the fewer resources you have for, you know, good, clear thinking. And that's what, that's what goes on. And that's what's, you know, driving so much dysfunction and unhappiness and, you know, and, and, and everything in the world. So, so, you know, I just realized we needed a language to kind of notice these threats, especially like notice them coming, you know, what's the salt and pepper and chili and sour and sweet of, you know, emotions, basically, not everything, but what's the basics that people need to be able to recognize if they want to intervene. And I was interviewing all these neuroscientists for the book and, and I started to see a pattern. First, The first pattern I saw was they're all social, like social was off the charts, more powerful than non-social. And then I kept hearing scientists say the same thing, like, wow, we were doing this study and you know, looking at what happened when, you know, people had a, like the ultimatum game when they're like competing for money. And, and what we found, you know, so surprising was a sense of fairness was even more activating of the reward network than money or chocolate or other things like independent of other variables, you know, fairness on its own was activating the reward network. And they were like really surprised. And then like unfairness was like, activating the pain network, you know, very similar to physical pain. And they were like, surprise, or, or anyway, it was, it was lots and lots and lots of these studies. And what I realized it was there was some kind of hidden pattern that no one else had seen yet that kind of described the biggest social emotions that were happening. And it took me about three years to find it, played with a couple different models. But in the end, I landed on, on five ideas summarized by one word. And these five ideas are essentially the five things that create strongest threats and the strongest rewards, and they're actually driving human behavior all the time. And it's really the in many ways it's the neuroscience of motivation, of engagement, of why people do what they do, of the carrot and stick, of you know, like so many different things. It's actually a very powerful framework. anyway, so it spells out scarf, which stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And status is literally you compared to others or you compared to yourself in the past you know, feeling a little bit better than is very rewarding. Feeling a little bit less than is much stronger on the threat side. So the, the threat's always worse. Certainty is, you know, ability to predict. That's why we're addicted to these phones. They give us an increase in certainty in so many domains. Autonomy is a feeling of control or choice. Relatedness is uh, feeling like you have shared goals with other people. You're in the same group. And fairness is, you know, equity and fairness. So, so basically these are playing out all the time. And in and, and, in situations where you have really strong threats, you generally have four or five of these under attack. So if you feel like someone's you know, saying that you did the wrong thing and you don't understand it and you have no control and you used to trust them and it's unfair, then you've hit all five and you'll be really upset until you find a way to maybe find control or until you find a way to understand it and increase certainty or until you find a way to see how it is fair or something else. So until you find a way to increase one of the domains, it will send you a little nutty. And so that's, you know, that's going on the back of our mind. So we, you know, we teach this to organizations. Scarf is, you know, many of the big tech firms, more than half of big pharma, many other firms are are learning this language and applying it, you know, many, many different domains. We're sort of more focused on the organizational context than individuals. Although at one point we may build something for individuals, but you know, we've we've helped over a million managers in the last year be better through understanding this kind of language, you know, across the globe.
2: So fascinating. And, and I, I love this whole field of research and endeavor. It's really, really interesting. And in some ways, bringing in the social element makes me come back to one of my favorite themes or ideas from the book, which was this notion of how do we also, we talked earlier about how we can create breakthrough insights for ourselves. How do we help create breakthrough insights for other people? And and I, I think one of the taglines of the book was, help people think better, don't tell them what to do. Tell me a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, that's quiet leadership, which was the one just before your brain at work. And quiet leadership was like a a summary of the the way we think about coaching people, which is, is really the generation of insight. For us, coaching is about facilitating insight. And coaching without insight is kind of advice and rapport and empathy and other things, but doesn't really create change. We, what we found is that coaching conversations with insight are dramatically more likely to Create real change, and you think of insight as just a moment where your brain really changes in a way that that releases a lot of energy. You see things differently. So, you know, what we did for a long time is is essentially unpack what's the what's the fastest way to bring people to insight, bring other people to insight. And you know, the cliff notes on that is is of course you want to make their brain quiet. It's a little more than that. You want to lift them up to where they're going, not to the problem. So you've got you got to help people like. You know, be more approach focused or positive focused or possibility focused. So, that again, that increases the chance of insight. That's one of the principles: be positively oriented. And you want to lift their thinking up to more abstract than than concrete stuff because concrete is quite noisy. Abstracts more quiet. And you know, you want to ask people questions that essentially make them reflect. You know, ask questions that have people kind of quietly look inside their thinking. That's the, that's the sort of summary. There's a lot more to it, but you know, if someone says to me, Hey, I'm really stuck on this project. I'll say, well, what's your goal? And they will be like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know what my goal is. I'm just stuck. Like, let me think about my goal. And they'll reflect for a minute and they'll come back and say, Oh, I guess I need to build this relationship better. And suddenly they're on the right path. And I'm like, Oh, is there a model for how good you want this relationship to be? Like, is there a relationship with someone else that is the quality you want? And they're like, mm, wow, that's a really interesting question. I've never thought about that. Let me think about it. And then suddenly they'll have an insight, right? So, you know, asking questions that, that kind of make people reflect is the heart of it. And, and not digging into the problem. It's so tempting to dig into the problem or dig into the details. What you want to do is get people to think about their thinking. Don't dig into the problem. Don't dig into the details. Get people to think about their thinking. That's the big message in, in quiet leadership and, the, and the, the way to generate insight in others most powerfully.
2: The idea of, and this is a tool that, I, that I've sometimes heard called or called Socratic Influencing. This notion yep. of asking people questions to to make them start to reflect and think about their own, think about where they are, think about their own thinking, as you put it, is so powerful. And it's almost like Inception, where you plant the idea in somebody's head, and then they realize it themselves, as opposed to you trying to convince them.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's, it's also like, you know, we need to build a mental map of something to act on it. You know, anything we're going to take act, action on, we've got to kind of see it in some way and to be committed to it. And so, you know, you've got your map of how exciting an idea is, but you know, they need their own map. I took a photo years ago when I was visiting New York for living here of, of two guys in, in, in Central Park with a sign up and, and a couple of chairs. And it, it was just, it said free advice. <laughs> and it's a really funny picture of, uh, you know, we all want to give free advice. People come to us with problems and we just kind of give free advice. But that advice, invariably is much more about the giver than, than about, you know, the person and what they really need. You know, someone tells you their problem and you just map onto what your brain would do, given your history and motivations, everything else. And so it's a real crapshoot. Whereas, you know, insights are often very personal and very unpredictable. What we actually need to do is very hard to just guess at. The, the individual brain needs to solve it much more.
2: Touching on this idea of, of turning insights into action, how do we start to actually do that?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. My kids just bought some arugula. I call it rocket. It's actually the correct term, I believe, but (laughs) in Paris they call it rocket. R o q u e t t e. But here it's called arugula. But arugula is amazing. It's really hardy once it's grown. Like it grows like crazy. It grows really well. It's fantastic in salads. You can get like a little, you know, like a square foot of arugula in a garden would give you enough for a salad every day for months. So it's it's great. But when it first starts growing. Like if you, especially if you plant seeds, you know you need to water it every single day. And if it like dries out, it's just not going to make it. I think like habits are like this, and you know like what, whatever the habit is you're trying to work on, they're, they're a lot like seedlings in that you know they'll take hold once they take root and, and they're kind of dug in a bit. They're great; they'll they'll take hold. But the first you know a few days, especially the first week or two of a new seedling is like the first time of a new habit. Is you've got to kind of water it every day. Now watering in the brain means paying attention, and attention grows connections. So how do you grow connections every day? It's like, you know, set an alarm where you're gonna spend one minute, you know, making a note about what you noticed about this habit. You know, set an alarm for that. Ask a person to check in with you. But you know, do something that has you kind of be reminded. The other thing is that the positive social pressure of learning things with others is very powerful. So, you know, I go back to like do learning with people and it makes you keep paying attention so when we roll out big learning initiatives in organizations we will we'll design content that that the people managers will take their teams through so that the team can like support each other versus putting people into training and what we find is that the social pressure of learning something together in little bites over time is fantastic it's you know huge compared to just kind of going in a classroom one off it's really this watering effect of you know being around people that you learn stuff with every day you're constantly reminded of what you learned and, and it provides some some real accountability there.
2: So the book came out almost ten years ago. I know you have a revised edition that's coming out soon. What's changed and what's remained the same?
0: Yeah,
3: it's really interesting. I was kind of anxious going into the revision, like, oh my god, I'm gonna have to rewrite a ton, and the book's kind of extremely simple on one level but simplicity is (laughs) hard it took me four years to write it and I I threw it out and started completely again four or five times like started from scratch because I I just wasn't happy with how it was working and it's it's very hard to do so the book's very 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 simple it's the story of one day for two characters and and there's sort of a, a a take one where they mess up and then the scientists explain why they messed up and then a take two in each chapter where you see what they would do if they got if they understood their brain better. And then you sort of go into the next chapter there's another scene between different people. So it's kind of a story across the day, a bit like sliding doors of different scenarios, but with the science explaining it. And I was, I was really anxious going into it, like, oh my God, I'm going to have to change science. It's going to unravel all this stuff. It's going to make it impossible. And what I found is very little on the science side that needed revising. I mean, there's definitely been a couple of things that are uh, interesting tweaks. You know, we know more about self-regulation, but a lot of it's inside baseball and the general kind of observable, you know, instructions for people are not that much different. So, you know, we didn't find any like huge and almost things. There's, you know, a lot more studies illustrating like the SCARF model, which is in the book, a lot more studies explaining like status and autonomy and fairness. And so, you know, I was able to add studies, but not much on the science side, but what I did find that was surprising and kind of a bit unsettling is, you know when I wrote the book, you know it sort of talks about you know an epic of overwhelm. And to be honest, looking back ten years, pretty much anyone that that would would read this book now would say, "Oh my God, I wish that the world had that level of epidemic because where we are now is just like some next level stuff. And you know when I wrote it, it was all about you know emails and the fact that Blackberries were you know were destroying the brain all stuff. And you no, know, now we have smartphones where it's not just emails it's social and it's in you know it's instagram it's it's obviously you know accessible movies all the time with netflix and streaming it's you know it's linkedin with you know constant networking job searching it's you know ebay online with you know like there's so many things you can do constantly all the time that are much more fun than what you might do you know in your day job or everything else so it's you know huge distraction and people's brains basically need the book much more than they ever did but the main changes were like you know, the level of of, uh, chaos that's happening and just, you know, we don't really use Blackberries much anymore. And just the sort of the kinds of issues that people were facing. So yeah, the revised edition just, you know, feels much more relevant. But what I found in writing it is the book's kind of more relevant than it's ever been. It was the cliff note.
2: I couldn't agree more that today's world, the the epidemic of overwhelm has has increased exponentially.
3: Yeah, I know it has.
2: So you touched earlier on this notion of of driving change in organizations at any scale. We shared some of those lessons. Are there any other key themes or ideas that, that you've learned or come across recently in looking at how do we really create organizational change at all kinds of different levels of granularity? Yeah, it's a big topic.
3: It's a really, really big topic. I mean, we think there's three kinds of work to do. Make things a priority build real habits, and then install systems that support those habits. And most organizations are p- sort of pretty good at the first step, the P, the priorities, you know, somewhat okay, like give them a C grade on a, there's sort of a B grade on the priorities so It's maybe a C grade or, a, you know, B to C on the, on the systems and like an F on the habits. They're just terrible at actually giving people tools and processes that actually build habits the way the brain digests habits. Or not digest, but the way the the brain kind of the, the way the way that habits get actually built, and so pretty much we ignore you know human learning science and 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 brain science when it comes to learning, and we just sort of throw stuff at people and hope it sticks. So so a lot of the work we're doing is about like working out like the fewest possible habits people need in any domain, putting them, and often there's like two or three, putting them in the right order, and then working out how to teach them to everyone all at the same time you know, using all sorts of technologies. So we're somewhat technology neutral, but we're looking at what is the right stuff for people to be doing and how do we get everyone doing that at the right time, whether that's around like having a growth mindset, which is a lot of what we're doing, or it's around being more inclusive, right? Or it's actually about having more insights. You know, these are some of the big priorities for companies right now. But in any of these domains, what you've got to do is, you know, make it important, but then you've got to give people the right habits to work on just a few and you need people working on one at a time and preferably everyone at once. So that's that's the way we're thinking about it. And we're able to get some really exciting results where, you know, we can, we can work with 10,000 employees the same month all around the world, all at the same time and see like 75 to 95% of them all now doing something very different every week. And this is without training programs. This is some really different things. So we're, you know, we're really following the science and experimenting with this idea of a few habits, one at a time in social situations, kind of all at the same time, we're experimenting with different ways of doing that and getting some extraordinary results. But you know, being a, my, my day job is heading up the Neuroleadership Institute. And you know, we, we, we're scientists at the core there. We're working with 30 of the top 100, but, you know, we're constantly experimenting and learning. And, you know, it's a fascinating uh, thing. And I will just put a plug in and say, we're hiring all around the world, particularly in the US, but uh, anywhere in the US, we're at New York based, but anywhere in the States, but also in Amir and APAC and many places. So we're hiring, you know, folks who who love this space, ambitious, really smart. We're about 200 full-time people now and, you know, growing fast. So will just throw that out there as well. Neuroleadership.com is the website, neuroleadership.com, or just look up davidrock.net and you'll see more about me and you'll see some, some links there. You know, organizational change is kind of broken. 30% of change initiatives out there in the wider world succeed. Most of the reason they don't succeed is a failure to change human habits, and we're trying to change that
2: another fascinating statistic that only thirty percent of organizational change initiatives succeed because they're not paying attention to psychology and habits for people who are listening you you obviously besides checking out the book and and you know we'll we'll provide another opportunity in a second to share some places where people can find you and and all these resources. What would one activity or piece of homework be? For listeners to start down the path of concretely implementing some or one of the themes, or ideas that we talked about today.
3: I mean, start building language and, and uh, you know, but the, the, this language should be one habit at a time. So I don't want people to think I'm trying to sell you my book. I'm not. I, I make, I don't know, five cents or something if you buy it. It's not a big deal. But the, the, a lot of the stuff in my book is actually available in blog form. That you can just read and share. I've got a blog at Psychology Today. So just look up David Rock Psychology Today. Um, What I'd say is, you know, look through all the different posts and, you know, find something that your brain's really curious about and, you know, go, go and work on that. But again, even if it's one or two other people, but, you know, talk to people about it rather than work on it on your own. But, you know, find something you want to work on around, you know, improving your brain. And, you know, there's some other great writers in this space as well, but... Certainly, I have tried to make the language like really simple and sticky. But you know, find something to work on. Maybe it's insight. Maybe you just want to work on keeping your brain quiet in the morning. You know, try that. Track the data. Like maybe try it for two weeks and see how many big ideas you have. See how many productive hours you have. You know, try and track the data as much as you can of what happens when you do this. And then maybe go back to the old way. See what happens. Track the data. The insight stuff is great. And certainly, like understanding SCARF, learning about SCARF can be super powerful as well in terms of managing your own and other people's uh, mental state.
2: And, David, for listeners that want to find you, your work, the book, et cetera, online, can you share again what is the best place for them to find you?
3: Yeah, for sure. DavidRock.net is my kind of personal website. It's got sort of various stuff I'm involved in. Neuroleadership.com, N E U R O, so neuro, like brain leadership, one word. Neuroleadership.com is the organization. There's also a blog called your brain at work. It's kind of in the neural leadership site now, but if you just look up your brain at work, you'll find a blog and there's tons and tons and tons of things that we've been writing about in that space. So that's a, that's a good resource. I also run a conference each year. It's the world's leading research conference for practitioners. And it's really a room full of 800 change agents from all walks of life who want to follow the science of change better. That's in November, the 19th and 20th of November in New York. You can also stream that for free, some of the biggest sessions. So anywhere in the world, I think we had over 20,000 folks streaming that. So 19th and 20th of November in New York City or free online, it's called the Neuroleadership Summit, and it's where we release new findings about all sorts of important topics around organizations today. So yeah, lots of resources. And then, yeah, my book, Your Brain at Work on Amazon, obviously everywhere else. And yeah, if you're interested in the organization and what we're up to, potential jobs, just there's a careers, just look at careers in and you'll see that there.
2: Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all these insights and all this wisdom with the listeners, some really, really interesting points and ideas and tactics.
3: Yeah. Thanks for the interest. Lots of good ideas here
2: as well as we're speaking. Thanks for the interest in the work. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email.